One of the things that has become more and more clear to me in my old age is the importance of context. Um, contextual is a word that we probably don't use enough in Christianity, in the church. When I was going to seminary, my senior year of seminary, we had a, a class. It was called Contextual Theology. It was a required class. Um, it was provided for us the year after we came back from our internship year. And I, I can remember one of, the, one of my fellow classmates said that he had learned in his context that they didn't sing one of the settings of the post-communion canticle in our Lutheran liturgy. Um, I don't know if you remember this canticle, but it goes, uh, The Lord recalls his promises and leads his people forth in joy. With shouts of thanksgiving, alleluia, alleluia. Now, he served his internship in Detroit, Michigan. And they didn't sing that post-communion canticle in the churches in the heart of automaking America. Because if you remember that first phrase that I said, the Lord recalls his promises. <laughs> Context means everything. <laughs> And if we miss the context, it can be disastrous. It helps us to understand more clearly so that we might be able to connect with the people that God has placed in our lives. One of the comments from this particular class that we learned was to think like a missionary to act like a missionary. And so the language, the culture, all of that makes such an important difference. For instance, if you were to go to a new place, a new land, with a different language and a different culture, how would you explain to them the word forgiveness? You know, we might, we might have to spend some time listening and learning about their language and their culture and their context. And as you learn, then we can attempt to try to interpret forgiveness. But it's still going to take some give and take, some learning. So if we wanted to record an important event from our day for future readers, for people who would hear our, our record, our writing, we might begin like Luke. In the year of President Joe Biden, Governor Doug Ducey, and Mayor David Ortega. Or we might say in the year of the presiding Bishop Elizabeth Eaton and the Grand Canyon Synod Bishop Deborah Hutter, or if you wanted to become more Secularly contextual, you could say, in the year the Phoenix Suns lost in the NBA Finals to the Milwaukee Bucks, but who now has an 18-record game streak. <laughs> 
So context becomes an important way for us to understand what we're trying to communicate. And Luke spends more than all the other gospel writers in defining the context for John the Baptist. And so what we begin to assess is that that the context was important for Luke. Luke not only wrote the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And so for Luke, it's not just the story of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, but it's also the story of the early church and how does the church form, move, develop, and grow. And so for, for Luke, the context becomes important. Kind of like in the year that we were ravaged by a global pandemic, we all got to know our grocery store clerks really well. Luke is trying to put the entrance of John into context for us. And he begins by introducing us to the world leaders and rulers of his day. Tiberius Caesar had succeeded Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the head of the Roman Empire during the time of um, uh, when Jesus was born and uh, died shortly after Jesus' death. And so Caesar Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius Caesar. Uh, Tiberius Caesar, not to be outdone by uh, Caesar Augustus, um, was also quite ruthless and violent. Uh, For example, uh, he reigned from the years 14 AD to 37 AD, And um, during his reign, he was always highly suspicious of his Roman military. Remember, he's the emperor, but he's highly suspicious of his military. And he's also very highly suspicious of his Senate. (laughs) And so he would create these show trials. He had an assistant who would do this for him. They would create show trials. They'd put his rivals, his opponents, on trial. And then they would be sentenced to a long imprisonment or to death. And that was just a way to kind of keep everybody off balance, right? So Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor during Luke's writing of this gospel. He was intolerant not only of his enemies, but of foreign religions, in particular the Jews, In 19 AD, he had expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. Then we learn about Pontius Pilate, who previously had been the governor of Syria at this precise time that uh, John, or that Luke has dated this gospel. He had become the governor of Judea. So he had relocated from up north down to Jerusalem where he was now going to reign over the next 10 years as the governor of Judea, which would put him into contact, conflict with Jesus the Christ. There were three tetrarchies, which is kind of unusual because a tetrarchy means four. Um, But 
from what I have read uh, on this issue is that the reason they talk about three tetrarchies is because one of them included reg two regions. So tetrarchies are, are regions. Normally it'd be like four regions. And um, so there are three rulers and three tetrarchies, but one tetrarchy actually encompasses two. And so what we hear about these rulers is that um, the, the three tetrarchies were formed after King Herod's death. King Herod was another ruler in this region of Judea. And when he died, um, I don't know if you remember, he was also very ruthless. He would, um, he would get suspicious of his sons, especially his very capable sons, and so he would kill them. He would murder them. And so, so Herod, um, when he died, the Romans are the ones who, who allowed the new rulers to come into place because the Herodian rulers were, uh, were a religious group. And so they had to get authorization, in a sense, from, from the Romans. Um, the Romans couldn't find one solitary son who was gifted enough to take over for King Herod, probably because he killed all his gifted ones. <laughs> and, and so they found three sons to rule three regions. And the first one was Herod Antipas. Uh, he gets the name Antipas put behind him so that we don't get him confused with his father. And so Herod Antipas was a ruler of Galilee. He is the one that's going to also have the most contact with Jesus. Because, uh, for instance, when, when Jesus is arrested and brought to Pilate, Pilate sends him on to Herod because he said he's a Jew. He's not my problem. He's your problem. And then Pilate receives him and sends him back to Pilate. So, so Herod Antipas was a ruler of this region of Galilee. At the time of Jesus' arrest... Um, Pilate, um, I guess I mentioned that, sent him on to, uh, um, to Herod. But also Herod is the one, if you remember, that has John the Baptist uh, beheaded. So that's Herod Antipas. The second ruler was Philip, his brother. He was ruler of the regions of Iturea and Trachonitis. And then another brother, Lysanias, ruled over Abilene. Then we get mention of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas ruled over the temple Sanhedrin as a high priest. Now there's only one high priest at a time, but somehow they both get mentioned together, Annas and Caiaphas. Most likely the reason is that uh, Annas ruled earlier, he's an older man, um, 7 to 16 AD I believe he ruled, and uh, then he had a son, um, who ruled after him for a couple years, 16 and 17 A.D., something like that. And then from 18 to 37 A.D., um, Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, was the ruler of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is all family, and so most scholars believe that Annas still pulled a lot of weight. The reason he was no longer... Um, high priest was the Romans didn't like him in that position. They saw him as too confrontational and too much of a threat. So they forced his removal. And that, in a sense, then brings us into the context of what Luke is writing about.
In the context of this pantheon of world rulers, Luke tells us that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. The word of God, not the word of John, not the word of tradition, not the word of the day. It was the word of God that came to John, son of Zechariah. John came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John's decisive power comes from God's word. One of the interesting things that I discovered in this reading is that when we read about you know, Jesus being the word of God, in the Greek, the word that they used to translate that is, uh, that we use to translate that word to word is logos. You've all maybe heard of that Greek word, logos. And so that is a predominant word in the Gospels that describes what Jesus speaks and who Jesus is. He is the living word who speaks the word. But when, they, when Luke describes John speaking the word of God, see, we can't do this in English. We don't have a complex enough vocabulary. So what, they, what we discover is that when Luke describes what John is speaking, he uses a different word for word, rhema. And so what's the distinction here? I think the distinction is that even though this is the word from God, what is being offered is a word about the word. There is only one true logos. There is only one true living word. And there is only one word that comes from that living word, Jesus. And that's why he is the logos. And all other words that come from God, that speak about God, are rhema. They're secondary to the logos to the word of God. Nonetheless, what John has come to say is important and powerful and decisive. What John is proclaiming is a word that's going to level all the mountains. It's a word that is going to straighten out all of those crooked pathways. It's a word that's going to fill in the valleys. It's a word that's going to create our spiritual interstate highway system. The living word is preparing for the word. And so the question becomes, how are we preparing? How are we preparing for the word to come? John prepares by his call to repentance and to baptism. And John has done a spectacular job of preparing the way. Because when Jesus comes, the way has been prepared for him. Jesus is on the scene. John has prepared the people for his coming. And so when we talk about Advent, we talk about waiting for the birth of Jesus. But we also know that Jesus was already born. That he lived and that he died. 
And so we're awaiting for the anniversary, the celebration of his coming, but we're also waiting for his second coming, for when Jesus Christ will come again. And so the question becomes for us, how do we prepare for that second coming? Since Christ has redeemed us through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, since Christ has brought us this forgiveness, this redemption, how will we as Christians now prepare the way? I used to serve a church in Minnesota, west central Minnesota, but it was a really, it was a small town, but it was a very large church. And I think I've shared before with you this round sanctuary uh, with Hebrews 12.1 inscribed on a frieze around the sanctuary. And then below that was names of saints, beginning with the Old Testament figures, you know, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, going all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and gospel, uh, the gospel writers, uh, Mary. And, you know, so we'd go through this biblical um, recitation of all these important people. But then there was also some of the early church fathers. I'm sorry, moms. They didn't record moms. They just recorded the fathers. Um, so they, and this was, this was done in the 60s. And so they, they had the names of some of the early church fathers. Um, and then they'd have some contemporary theologians. And then there was the spot that was left open for you to place your name amongst the saints. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So, <laughs> it caught me off guard one day. You know, because we're a large church in southwest Minnesota, um, we hosted a lot of synod events. It caught me off guard one day when one of the pastors, who is a really, really smart pastor, he's now a theologian uh, professor, at a theological university. And I, I remember he was leaving and he, he said, you have a heretic on your wall. <laughs> now, maybe that didn't strike you as funny as it did me. But he said, you have a heretic on your wall. Well, do you know what a heretic is? Let me explain that first of all. A heretic is someone who has espoused a worldview outside of the parameters of Orthodox Christianity. And so there are heretics like Marcion, an early church heretic. He was adamantly supportive of the New Testament. He believed in Jesus Christ. He believed in the, the, what the gospel said about Jesus. He believed in Paul's proclamation as the chief apostle. And uh, what he didn't believe was that we needed any of the Old Testament. So he just wanted to kind of jettison that book out. And so he became a heretic. You can't teach Christianity without teaching our roots. We uh, come from our Jewish roots. And so um, that's what a heretic is. So it's hard to imagine that one of the biblical names was, uh, was a heretic. And, and so I remember going back and kind of trying to do some research of all the names that were left. And, uh, and then I found one, and his name was Tertullian. He was an early church father, 
It was a bishop, Bishop of Carthage, which is in Tunisia, uh, part of North Africa. And, and so um, when I saw that name, I did a little research, and sure enough, at the end of his life, he kind of advocated for a heretical view of Christianity. Um, but he had done so many awesome things. You know, he had translated and, and done so much writing in Latin uh, because that was the predominant language in North Africa at the time. And, and um, just a great, great leader in many respects. But then he kind of followed some stuff that maybe wasn't so helpful. And, um, and they kicked him out of the church. Um, well, they didn't really kick him out of the church. If you study Catholicism, because they do the most work on this stuff, um, the Catholics would tell you, well, he's, he's still a Christian, but he's just not a saint. And um, so that kind of is problematic for me because I think if you're a Christian, you're a sinner and a saint, right? But that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> so our, our good friend Tertullian um, followed uh, Montanus. Uh, he was criticized for insisting on speaking in tongues, for living simplistic lifestyle, and for celibacy, for clergy. And, um, and he claimed that um, that only true Christians could speak in tongues. Everyone else was an p- imposter. And, and so that's kind of what got him into trouble. So I was reading this article this past week on Christian heresy uh, by a theologian named Scott McKnight. And uh, he was talking about how the current state of affairs in Christianity today is to kind of figure out who's a heretic um, in, in our current uh, pantheon of religious leaders and um, I guess what I found interesting not, not that we shouldn't be concerned about orthodox Christianity we should be concerned about that but this is what I found interesting is what Scott Manike wrote before he gets to the answer about her- heresy he says this it is too bad we don't have such an evocative term for praxis. Praxis is, you know, taking the information and applying it into the practice of your daily life. He says, Jesus' focus on hypocrisy was much more than on heresy. And it might just be an indication of how far we have strayed as Christians, how far we have strayed for us to give so much attention to heresy and not enough to failure in praxis. We know a lot about theology today. I would say we know more about theology today than we have ever known. And people know more about theology today. But do we actually practice it? Are we failing in our theological beliefs and views? Or are we failing in our practice of our theology? Now before we answer my question, but look at how many hours I've spent serving people. Look how many miles I've put on my car to help the church. Look how much money I've given to support the church. How many hours of study I've spent in the Bible. Before we get into that, 
Let's ask another question. How do you live your Christian life? How do you live your faith in your daily Christian life? You know, I remember when I, I, I one of the classes I, other classes I took in seminary was on addictions. And one of the, you know, we were introduced to uh, the 12 steps and uh, we studied um, um, uh, different aspects of, of addiction issues. And one of the things that amazed me about 12 steps was that um, I would hear from people in recovery that said, you know, um, 12 steps is actually my church. And then I'd ask them, well, can, can you explain to me what you mean by that? And they would tell me, well, I don't just get information. I have to act on it. So, you know, it's not just about having a feeling like, oh, I did something wrong. And that's my repentance. But the repentance was actually going to the person that I wronged and saying, I'm sorry, I hurt you. And I need to account for that. This past month, I've tried to highlight how people are living their lives, I think, in some spectacular ways. Uh, we got a video clip of Boris and Fernanda who are working with children who, who have been caught up in sex trafficking. That's one of our ministries. And then Tom and Cynthia, who are mentoring and ministering to parents of infants and toddlers. And then um, the joys that David Cole and I have of working with confirmation youth, one of the highlights of our, of our week. And seeing um, the excitement in Mary's eyes when she gets up to give us the latest update on our refugee ministries. Where is God placing a passion on your heart to serve? You see, I think for too many years, I thought it was proper to worship every week. That's how you could define your true Christianity, was coming to worship every week and then um, studying the Bible. And I thought if people did that, then they would mature into faithful Christians. But what I've learned, I think, is that I have probably failed God and I have failed some of you. Because I have had that perspective. Instead of thinking about contextualizing it, who is God placing in our lives today? Who does God want us to reach out to? How am I called to serve? How am I called to live? Who do I need to apologize to? All those kinds of things. Like I said, we don't have a shortage of Christian information. But I think we do have a shortage of Christian discipleship and mission. And that's why I believe God is calling us to prepare this church for the future which will be a future with discipleship and mission. So the question then becomes, how
how do we prepare the way? How has God been calling you to prepare the way? How is God calling you to live your life and to serve God by serving your neighbor? How will we, as a congregation, share the good news? Like next Sunday morning at 9.30 when we have 100 kids on risers out on that circle. How will we share the good news? I don't have any answers. Actually, what I'm looking for is deeper questions. And I'd love to hear what you're thinking about these things. I'd love to hear what God is placing on your heart. That's why God gave us email. (laughs) Besides being able to search Christmas. Truly, I, I would love to hear what you're thinking about as you contemplate how do you live your life as a follower of Jesus. John has called us to the same call that he had. Let's prepare the way. How will we do that? Amen.